Let's turn to Esther again, the end of chapter 2 and the entire third chapter. Esther 2 and 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And so on to really chapter 4 and uh, verse 3. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible which uh, don't contain the name of God. There are many chapters in the Bible where the name of God is absent and there are two books in the Bible which don't contain the name of God. The Song of Songs and this book of Esther. The Babylon reigned over by King Xerxes, operated without any reference to the living God. And this absence then is reflected deliberately in the absence of his name from this book. It's the only book where everything happens in Persia or Babylon. But the Lord himself is conspicuously present in every incident related here, more than anywhere else in the Bible, I think, the hand of God in providence is seen in the book of Esther. God in his providence looks after our world, he rules, he governs according to his holy will, so that nothing happens without his appointment, nothing slips through a crack. We usually characterize God's providence in three ways. We say they are all, all his works utterly holy. He isn't responsible for anything wicked. He doesn't tempt people to wickedness, doesn't seduce them. He isn't the author of anything wicked at all. He is light. There's no darkness at all in him. There's no cosmic malice. He isn't a God of capriciousness. And then we say all God's works of providence Everything that touches our lives, even if as slight as a bubble landing on our head or a feather stroking our cheek, it comes out of God's immense wisdom. He is the only wise God, our Saviour. So he knows just where you are. He knows you inwardly. He knows your future. So all his providence comes out of that wisdom. And then, also, that providence is immensely powerful. If you just limited it to the 6,000 million and more people that live in the world today, all of them living and moving and having their being in Almighty God. If we limited it just to that, how immensely powerful is his providence. So his, his providence then is utterly holy, immensely wise, and extraordinarily powerful, all right? That's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. First thing we're going to look at this morning is this. The providence of God embraces every word we hear. Okay, Mordecai was the loving stepfather of Esther, who had married King Xerxes. Mordecai had been involved in the life of Babylon all his life. Fifty years ago, his family had the choice of returning under Cyrus's decree back 
to Jerusalem. But the family had refused and they had become established like thousands of others had been established in modern Iran, Babylon. He'd become uh, a minor civil servant, a, a magistrate in Susa, the citadel. And uh, it's hard to know exactly what, what's the precise spiritual condition of Mordecai and Esther. One could hardly say they were vibrant, growing, maturing believers. But they were on a learning curve and the providence now that catches them up is intent on making them much stronger and more understanding than they've ever been. Jehovah Jesus once said, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet one of them may not fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Are you not much more valuable than many sparrows? Now that wasn't a joke. That was a vivid saying that's become part of our culture. God really knows the number of hairs on your head. When you brushed your hair this morning, the number of hairs that came out and are in that brush, he knows and how many are left. There's nothing God doesn't know. There's no senile forgetfulness in the ancient of days. Nothing happens in which God has not decreed. The fall of the Twin Towers, the slow falling from power, of our present Prime Minister. The fall of a single sparrow. You're driving along a country lane going over the mountain there and a, a, a sparrow suddenly shoots out and it's uh, flying in front of you and, and you slow down but there's that little thud. And the last you see is in your rear view mirror a bird with its uh, legs in the air lying in the middle of the country lane. Didn't happen by chance. Jesus says. It wasn't bad luck on that sparrow. Nothing happens by chance. God's providence upholds a little fleck of dust floating in a, a beam of sunshine as it comes through the window. The flocks of starlings that roost under the pier. All the movements of the, of the fish and the lobsters and the anemones in Cardigan Bay. He controls the meteors uh, and traces the track of the comets, the tear that falls from your eye when a fall comes to someone in your family. How much more can we be assured that God is in control? The grave doesn't fill by chance. Peter's fall at the fireside didn't happen in the vacuum. Remember what Thomas Watson said about such things? God always has a hand in the action where the sin is, but he never has a hand in the sin of the action. I want to show you from this passage then the circumstances of daily life betray their origin in the providence of God. Stories like this. Let's pick it up then. Mordecai was there in the... Uh, the gate, and he heard some gossip to the effect that two of the king's officers, Bigthana and Teresh, eunuchs guarding the entrance to the uh, royal apartments, were seething with hatred 
towards Xerxes and were plotting to assassinate him. He heard this on good authority. We don't know how he came to have this information. But he decided he would go straight away to his uh, stepdaughter, to uh, uh, Queen Esther, and tell her. And she went to her husband when she heard, and the king investigated the story and found it was true, and Bigthana and Teresh were executed. But Mordecai received no recognition. He didn't receive a, an honor from the monarch for what he had done. But that momentary ingratitude even was all caught up in God's providence. Some of you still attempted to think that it's all a chance. Nothing but bad luck to the would-be assassins and good luck for King Xerxes. Everything around us in the world by chance in our solar system. Everything in all the details, the tiny details, the vast details. Everything has come about by chance. What a great stretch. What wonderful believers you are to believe that. What stretch of faith. That you can trust in chance and in luck. In the beginning was luck. And luck pulled the trigger and set in motion a chain of events that eventually brought about the Sermon on the Mount and Mozart's symphonies and Shakespeare's writings and the World Wide Web and penicillin and Einstein and you and me. Can you believe all of human history, especially the life of Jesus Christ, is all due to chance? And that even now it's just good fortune that you came away and are in this building because of luck this morning to hear this message that can change your life. The God who created all things is the God who sustains all things, is the God in whom you live and move and have your being. And this God has brought you here and brought me here today. You think of that other assassination attempt that we read of in the Word of God. When 40 men in Jerusalem take an oath they're not going to eat or drink until they killed Paul. What happened? Well, Paul's sister had a little boy, a teenage boy who loved his uncle. And he melted into the shadows there and he heard the plot. And he went to see somebody, told his uncle, go to see, go to see the commander. And the commander heard him. The commander was there. The commander didn't say, oh, let those Jewish dogs kill one another. He didn't speak like that. He listened. He paid attention. He was there and he acted upon it straight away. And delivered Paul mightily. Ten more minutes, we wouldn't have had the letter to the Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, maybe Hebrews. We wouldn't have had them all. Church would have been impoverished. Was that all luck? Or is God in charge of everything that happens to us? You say, oh, you're a fatalist. No, I'm not a fatalist. There's this difference between fate and providence. Fate is blind. Providence sees. Fate is blind. A thing simply must be. 
It's an arrow shot from a bow. The arrow is going on. There's no target. You remember what I've told you about our beloved brother Salim Haddad when he was in the Arab Emirates and he was on the road one day and there was this man not paying any attention as he drove along and he knocked down a young girl. And Salim hurried across as a doctor to see if he could do anything and the man came out of his car and he saw Salim and he said, straight away, the will of Allah. The will of Allah. Salim scorned him. His bad driving, his carelessness. And immediately he says it's God's will. That's fate. That's fatalism. Providence uh, says there's a design and a purpose in everything. An end. All things are working together. And they're all working together for the good of those that love God and are called by His purpose. God is a purpose for men and women who trust in Him. Things are, are not done because they must be done, but things are done because then there's some holy, wise and powerful reason for them being done. Because it is right for them to be done in this way. And God, who is his own interpreter, will one day make it plain to us. God has not arbitrarily worked out human history and said, Xerxes will be the most powerful man in the world for 30 years. God has set the pillars on which the reign of Xerxes is going to be erected. And the surges and the boundaries and the defeats and the victories of his life. Even the thoughts of men are under the providence of God. The thought that Mordecai had. I must do something about this. I will tell Esther and she will tell the king. And it will be entered in the records that I was the one who did it. He had that thought. The thoughts of great men, the thoughts of presidents, have caused the deaths of many soldiers. There's a thought that Caesar had. All the world will be taxed. And everyone must go to the place where they were born. Oh no, the people said. Too much movement in the empire. Too much restlessness caused by that. Let them... Let's take a census, yes, for tax purposes, but where they live now. No, Caesar doesn't believe in democracy. Everyone has to move. And so, Mary, great with child, has to leave Nazareth, where in a few days' time the baby will be born, and she has to go that long journey to Bethlehem. And there, the prophecy, Micah's prophecy is fulfilled. That in Bethlehem the Messiah is to be born. And so our faith is more established. That God kept his word through a thought that Caesar had. The God who wings an angel. Go to Aberystwyth. Guides a sparrow. The God who upholds his sovereign throne in heaven is reigning in Aberystwyth today. All authority in heaven and on earth is to our Saviour given. We believe there's nothing around us, there's nothing above us, there's nothing beneath us, which is not in accordance with his own counsel and will. 
the Lord has made up his mind that things should be thus. And we are not fatalists, and we want you all to believe these things, because they are clearly taught in the Bible. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. None can say, God, you can't do it. And none can say, what are you doing? Because God does his own will. God overrules the things that are of the world and of the devil for his glory. So here were two men and they were planning to assassinate Xerxes. They were moved by malice and hatred. And yet what they did later worked out wonderfully for the people of God. Our thoughts, the smallest things, are under the providence of God. The second thing I want to say to you is that the providence of God embraces everyone we meet. Third chapter of Esther introduces us to a man called Haman, who had risen to become one of the most influential figures in the Persian Empire, second only to Xerxes himself. This man was filled with a pathological malice towards the Old Testament people of God in Persia. Hatred plus power are a fearful combination. We see it in Muslim suicide bombers today. They'll kill themselves if they are able, through that action, to kill total strangers, women, children. What do we know of Haman? this leading antagonist in this book. Well, we're told about him. He was an Agagite. Verse 1. What does that mean? Agag, or Agag, was the king of the Amalekites, the descendants of Amalek, the grandson of Esau. There was enmity between Israel and Esau, between Israel's descendants and Esau's descendants. When the children of Israel were moving on their exodus to the promised land, the Amalekites drove into them, sent their army in. A crucial battle took place. If Israel had lost, they would have been slaughtered. This was 900 years before these events in the book of Esther. But what did they do? They looked to God. Moses stood on the mountain and he surveyed the battle. Joshua was leading then his men against Amalek. You might know the hymn of William Cooper, what various hindrances we meet when coming to the mercy seat. And William Cooper says in that hymn, while Moses stood with arms spread wide, success was found on Israel's side. But when through weariness they failed, that moment Amalek prevailed. So two men sustained Moses, in his intercession, he sat down, they held his arms up to heaven, so he continued to pray for the people of God, for victory. And when the victory was won, God spoke. And God said, the feud between Amalek and Israel would never end. Exodus 17, 14, 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll, as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. 
He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And then there was another incident in the first book of Samuel, chapter 15, concerning King Saul, son of Kish. Kish, remember where you get that name? You get it when you're introduced to Mordecai. His family tree, chapter 2 and verse 5, Mordecai the son of Kish. So, King Saul was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites and all their property, but Saul defied God. He refused to execute King Agag and he helped himself to loads of the property that was the Amalekites. And that decision was an absolute disaster for Saul. And his, the kingship was taken from him. And later on then, he was killed in battle. And the man who claimed to have killed him was an Amalekite. So we were introduced to Haman. And we are emphatically told he was the Agagite. Verse 1. And then that is repeated in verse 10. Haman, the Agagite. Don't forget it. Again, chapter 8 and verse 3. Haman, the Agagite. And again, chapter 8 and verse 5, Haman, the Agagite. And again in chapter 9, verse 24, Haman, the Agagite. Five times we are told in the book of Esther that he was the Agagite. He was one of the leaders of a people whose desire it was to destroy the people of God generation after generation. So you don't hear, have just racial history or good tempered banter between Scots and Irish or English and Welsh. But here is a hostility that characterises our fallen world. While life and thought and being lost or immortality endures, that's going to be on. It's between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We are caught up today in that holy battle. So King Xerxes made the Agagites, the son of Amalek, Haman, the virtual Prime Minister. And that's underlined for us in verse 3. We're told Xerxes honoured him. Xerxes elevated him to a high position. Xerxes, Xerxes made him, gave him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. And they were made aware that each one of them knelt down before him. There wasn't one who didn't pay honour to Haman. All of them obeyed Xerxes in doing this. So here we are, we are told of Haman. We're going to have a lot to do with Haman then in the next chapters of this book. His lineage, his tradition, Prime Minister of Persia, the respect, the honour that people bowing to him. Then we are told, verse 2, but Mordecai wouldn't kneel down or pay him honour. Mordecai rained on Haman's parade by refusing to bow down. The man was the Prime Minister, but he wouldn't kneel down when he went in and out. The king had commanded everyone to bow down to him. Haman wouldn't do it. People expostulated with him day after day. They said, show respect to Haman. He's the Prime Minister. Mordecai kept standing. He bowed to the king, obviously, because they never said, bow to King Xerxes. He always bowed to King Xerxes, but he stood erect. Whenever the doors opened and out came Haman and his entourage. And finally they reported it to Haman. 
And Haman looked out of his carriage one day. He saw everyone else bowing down. And there this one solitary figure. Looking away. And standing erect. What do we say about his conduct? Well, we, we can say, as uh, Joyce Baldwin says in her commentary, that he was, he was part of Eastern tradition. To bow in recognition of age. And office. And superiority. And honour. And while obeisance was given supreme to God, suppliants bowed to those with, with more honour than them. Jacob bowed to Esau. David bowed to, to Jonathan, recognising his indebtedness to Jonathan. When Esther comes, she prostrates herself before King Xerxes. Mordecai. Just stood. He would not bow to Haman. Well, did he, uh, was it arrogance? We're not told that. There's a seed of arrogance in everybody's heart and they dress it up in moral motives. But he's a loyal subject of the king. There was no personal history that we know of between these two men. We're not told that Mordecai was a good judge of character and that he knew Haman to be a wicked man. Was, was there something of the spirit of George Fox, the uh, early uh, Quaker, who always kept his hat on when he was in anyone's presence, when he was introduced to King Charles, kept his hat on because all men, he said, were equal. He had a primitive egalitarianism about him. Well, no, because uh, Mordecai bowed to King Xerxes, it was just to this one. To Haman, he wouldn't bow. Let me say that uh, this refusal to honour Haman is an awakening of some religious conviction in Mordecai, that God is beginning now to revive his work. God is about to deliver these people from their compromise, from the Babylonization of, of their faith in the Lord. That this is a covenantal action. That Mordecai is waking up to the word of God. And he was after his misjudgments concerning his stepdaughter. And encouraging her to marry the tyrant. Now he's taking a serious stand. He is literally taking a stand. In solidarity with Jehovah his God. He wouldn't be like. So many of the other Jews in Babylon who were forgetting the word of the Lord, forgetting that the seed of the serpent had declared war on the seed of the woman, God's great deliverer. So here was Mordecai, he says, the time has come, we must draw a line somewhere or we'll just lose our identity. He hadn't forgotten the words of warning about Amalek, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, the last verses of Deuteronomy chapter 25, remember, God says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. 
when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that he's giving you to possess an inheritance. You shall blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Don't forget Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. But they did forget. King Saul forgot. And God rejected him as king. It was left to the prophet Samuel then to kill Agag at Gilgal. But here in Babylon, the fight is going on. Here's the same enemy, the same challenge. Israel's very survival depends on resistance to Amalek. So we have here, in this, the year is 483 BC, it's a historic repeat of the same agenda. Israel versus Amalek, Saul versus Agag, Mordecai, the Jewish descendant of Kish and of Saul, and Haman, the Amalekite descendant of Agag. Will Mordecai make the same mistake as Saul? Will he spare the inveterate enemy of God? Will he refuse to impose the covenant ban on him? No, he won't. He will stand firm. It was not in his place to kill the Amalekites, as Saul and Joshua and Samuel were, but he was to show courage. He was not to bow towards Haman. As a magistrate, he knew full well what he was doing. He was playing with fire. If King Xerxes saw him disobeying his order, then he would forfeit his life. But he had to. He had to obey God. He didn't have to live. So, if you ask whether it was right for Mordecai to refuse to honour Haman, the result is, yes, he was right. He was becoming biblically astute, theologically aware. He was understanding the ethic of giving honour to whom honour is due. And honour was not due in God's sight to Amalek. So, Mordecai followed the same ethic as the apostles. You obey the powers that be. Except when the powers of B tell you to do something which you cannot do as a believer. So Xerxes commanded everyone to honour Haman the Amalekite. But that was contrary to God's covenant. Oh, he couldn't, he couldn't bow down to an Amalekite that would destroy him. And so he stood erect. Let me tell you that the God of Israel became incarnate. And one day he met someone like an angel of light, a powerful prince, the god of this world, the seed of the serpent. He met him. The ruler of the darkness of this world did this to our Jesus Christ. He showed him the glories of Persia and Babylon and Africa and Asia and India and the Americas. All the glories of the world he showed to our Jesus. And he said, all this can be yours if you bow down to me. That's what he said. No cross, no whipping, no nails, no spear thrust, no cold tomb. If you bow down and worship me, you'll be saved from all of that. And you can still in your heart have a hatred for me, but just outwardly bow down before me. That's what he asked our King of Kings to do. And there was no choice. First then, there was no choice. Who's going to be God? Who's going to be your God? Who are you going to bow down before in this world? And the reply that Jesus gave him was, it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and him only serve. That's what he told him. Worship the Lord, him only. Only, he said. So Mordecai put his life in jeopardy. How easily it would have been for him to have pleaded the example of Jacob and David bowing down to a mighty ruler. But he couldn't do it with a clear conscience. He had put Haman, God had put Haman the Agagite in a position of power now to test God's people. To test them. And testings make us strong. When by the power of of God we do what we know we must do by his grace. The third and last thing I want you to see this morning is that God's providence embraces every threat that we might face. So, here in verse 5 is the reaction of Haman. When Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of of Xerxes. Now, this was no knee-jerk reaction. No sudden explosion of exasperation. Haman was filled with a vehement determination to wipe them all out. One man only. Peanuts. Ten, a hundred, a thousand, ninety percent of them. The whole lot of them, he said. If Haman was... Haman was the spiritual son of Lamech who cried, if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech seventy times seven. And so Haman planned genocide. The destruction of every Old Testament believer. And he would bring the gods on his side on this. And so what he did then, um, you see the people of Babylon believed that The gods all got together the first month of the year to fix the fates of men. And so what Haman did that first month of the year was to cast a lot. The pure, that's the Hebrew word for it, uh, it it becomes then the Purim, the Feast of Purim, which celebrated this event, the pure. Um, They put, say, 12 balls in in a pot and they shook it around. And then they would have incantations, mumble, jumble, jumbo, wumbo. And then they would put a hand in and they would say, Ah, the twelfth month, Adar. We'll wipe them out in Adar, the gods have said. But God's providence embraces everything, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So, God said, a year, a year to examine yourselves, a year to work, a year to pray, a year to repent, a year to savor the warnings. That's what God said to them. Then Haman went to the king and he told Xerxes, he had some terrible news about a law-breaking fifth column here in his empire. Verse 8, there's certain People dispersed, scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdoms whose customs are different from those of all other people and who don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest. 
to tolerate them if it pleases the king and the decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamel, Dapha, the Agite, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. All right, you see that? Haman talked about certain people. And there was a mixture of truths and half-truths and downright lies. He offered uh, Xerxes then uh, a great sum of money, 10,000 talents of silver. That is 345 metric tons. It would be about two-thirds of the annual revenue of the whole empire. That's how much he expected to get from taking the lands and the property of the Jews for himself. How were they living? How were the people of God living? How do you live? How do we live in, in Babylon? Our Babylon. How do we live? Jeremiah has told them how they're to live. Jeremiah 29 and 4 to 7. Listen, this is how they were to live. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's what he said. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 and 7. And there's every indication for us to believe that's exactly how God's people lived in Babylon. They were hard-working, law-abiding members of the community. They were well-respected citizens. And my reasons for believing that are the last five or six words of that chapter, of chapter 3. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Kill our Jewish neighbors, their children play with. Our children, we go to their weddings and they come to our weddings and now you say we are to slaughter Mrs. Benjamin and Mr. Abram down the street. Bewilderment. And you see how the king received the statement. This was the man Mordecai hoped they could make an alliance with. And he would be the defender of the Jews. You see this obscene readiness to give Haman the go-ahead to destroy the whole race. It's worse to me than Haman's request. Where was the interrogation? Who are these people? Who are they? What are they, what are they doing? What are the laws that they break that you tell me about? Why haven't my civil servants warned me about these people, this fifth column? Before now, they've been living in, in, in this uh, land of mine for over a, a century. Not a peep. Not a peep. When two men were reported to him as wanting to assassinate him, he interrogated. Not interrogation here. He's taking the ring off his finger and uh, he's giving the signet ring immediately to be stamped, to give the approval here. That this man is, uh, have the right to slaughter them all. 
don't, oh, don't think about the money, he says. But he's expecting a big fat check from Haman. The man's a monster. And there'd be many like him, destroying people all over the world. We're not shocked, are we, at Haman's request? We're not shocked. We lived through Hitler and Mao and Stalin and the millions they killed. We've seen what happened in Rwanda. We've seen what happened in the Balkans. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The people around us. We, we live as sheep amidst wolves and all our hopes are that the Lord will care for us and preserve us and keep us. If it weren't for the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit and an earlier grace in our, on our old land and the presence of the church as salt and light, weak as it is, this world would be hellish. Here is this God, the God in heaven. What kind of God is he? Some say he's a God of unconditional love. That's what they want to make our God in heaven. He just loves and loves and loves. He loves Haman. And he loves Xerxes. He loves and loves and loves. That's all. A God of unconditional love. The God in heaven hates things. He must. He must. Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 16 to 19 and that describes Haman perfectly. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, a man who stirs up dissension among his brethren. God hates such sins. And your sins, the God in heaven, hates them. Hates them. You are the object with Haman and Mordecai of God's hatred because of your sins. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against your ungodliness and your unrighteous acts. The focus of his hatred on sinners. And so the genocidal engineering was set up and you can read there in verse 13 how they sent envoys on horses right through the length and breadth of the, of the empire and warned them what was going to happen. There was going to be a night of the long knives at the end of the year. Get ready for it. And the great hope for the people of God is that God knew all about this. And God loved them. And God was all powerful. And God was doing a work in them. For too long they'd been living like Babylonians. They'd been prospering like Babylonians prospered and were enthusiastic with the enthusiasms of the Babylonians and zealous for the things Babylonians were zealous about. They as salt had lost their savour. The light of truth that they had had gone. And here was a wake-up call. It was a summons to seek the Lord, to turn from their sins, to cry to him for mercy. It was a clarion call 
that God was giving to his people. What a way for the clarion call to sound, for the trumpet to blast, them to spiritual awakening. And so the next verse of the next chapter tells us, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out of the city, he wailed loudly and bitterly. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. God's awakening his people. What greater hope can there be for the people of God when we just humble ourselves before God, when we cry mightily to him, individually and together, and we plead with God to have mercy that the forces of hatred, of anti-Christian forces, of antichrist are so powerful. God, we need you. We must have you. You must come. You must come. And we are no longer complacent and acting just like the world, but we are mourning and poor in spirit and crying that God will help us. There was no possibility of an army, of an uprising, of an alliance with Egypt. That arm of the flesh would fail them. Let everybody cry mightily to God. Let's try that. Let's try that, men and women. Let's be more earnest than we've ever been in asking God to visit us and help us and bless us and come in a new way and a powerful way into our land. We are fighting with principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world that would take them, would, would take us with them to hell. And we must have help from God to resist them and stand in an evil day and having done all to stand. Almighty God, bless thy word to us, arouse us and awaken us from our complacency. We are sorry that so much of our salt has lost its savour. Oh, may it not be so. May there be a beginning of new zeal. Give us wisdom and courage to stand and discernment to know when to bow and when not to bow. Oh, God, hear our prayers because we ask them all in Jesus' name. Amen.